I'm going to embarrass you for a minute here because we're going to move on now to some of the uh, sort of charity work that you do. But first, um, you've received many awards, including these are the ones I, I read about. Uh, in 2003, the only civilian to receive the Defence Force Commendation and Medal from Special Operations Command Australia. In 2004, a Medal of the Order of Australia. 2009, the Minister's Special Award from the Sabah Government. And in 2019, a Member of the Order of Australia. Is there one that stands out above the others? Well, because no one else, as far as I know, has still got one who's civilian, uh, the one from Special Operations Command would have to be the, the unique one. And when I wear it, it's a silver level, there's three levels, bronze, silver and gold. When I wear it um, to a special function, the military bods come in and home in on this thing I'm wearing, saying, where did you get that? Why are you wearing, Why are you wearing that? <laughs> and I say, well... Are they, are they suggesting you might have found it on eBay or something? Oh, I don't know. They're very <laughs> suspicious, you know. A fe female of my age wearing a Defence Force commendation medal. <laughs> and I said, well, it was given to me by Major General Duncan Lewis, who is now head of ASIO. And at the time, he was head of Special Operations Command. And I got it with a big citation for my research work. So I think that's probably the one that's a bit special. The others, of course, are all special in their own way because they're for different things. Absolutely. But, but that one, I think, yeah, that's the one. Fantastic. Neil, you, all, you have also received an Order of Australia medal for your work in the various projects which you two have originated. Can you please outline um, um, how you two um, be began the Santa Khan Memorial Scholarship Trust? Yeah, well, Gus, um, we just finished putting in the, the, the windows, the stained glass windows in St, Mi in St Michael's Anglican Church in Santa Khan. And we had some, because we budgeted very well and we had some very generous donations, we had some money left over. And we're speaking to the, the uh, priest over there, um, Archdeacon Moses Chin, and um, he mentioned the fact that the church were starting, thinking to start bringing in some uh, very smart and uh, impoverished girls who come from very poor families into the into Santa Khan to uh, put them into a hostel and so they could continue their education from primary through secondary and possibly through then into tertiary and, and, and do and a career. Otherwise, because they live in such a remote place, in such remote places, their education would stop when they got to primary primary level. Mm. And they would remain in the in the in the uh, village, Kampong, and um, uh, just uh, never be educated beyond that point. And he said, uh, you know, now that you've finished the windows, perhaps there's an opportunity if you'd like to help us out with. The, uh, this this project that we that we're starting uh, with the, with the hostel, well, we looked at the windows and considered that uh, although they're very nice, they don't actually do anything for anybody, and it would be nice to give back to the people of Sabah the, the kindness that they um, gave our soldiers when they were able to during the Second World War. So, on the condition that uh, the the girls that we that it is all, and it is only girls, there's a, a photograph of the of the hostel that they stay in. It's it's only one. One hostel, so you can't have boys and girls staying in a hostel that size. So we decided it was only only girls staying in the hostel, in the hostel, um, providing they were Caterson Dusen from the Caterson Dusen uh, background, which were the people who basically helped our soldiers. They were Christian. Uh, then we would be very delighted to you know, to subsidise as bit, the best we could this project that they were, they were considering starting over there. Um, we did that basically the first two or three years by Lynette is invited to, 
to speak at dinners, uh, after dinners, speak at dinners and lunches and those sorts of things. So we used to, she used to, we used to go along to those and we needed to do her talk to Rotary and to Probes and all those sort of places. And we'd leave a little wishing bag, what we call a wishing bag at the back, and we'd invite people. We would never charge a fee, we'd never ask for any speaking for anything like that. We'd ask people to make a contribution into the wishing bag perhaps equivalent to a good cup of coffee or a glass of wine or a bottle of wine or something like that, just to create, just to get some money. Well, people were very, we found people were very generous. They gave far more than just the value of those items I just mentioned. And we were able to, for the first two or three years, make a considerable contribution towards the, towards the, the trust, to, to, well, to, towards this program. And then it really gained, it gained a lot of momentum. And uh, as I showed you when I first came in, I just received a cheque for $9,000 from an RSL club in Sydney. Uh, that particular club had one of, one of its soldiers die as a prisoner of war mm. inside the gun, and that they, that's why they have this interest in it. And so we now have accumulated quite, a, quite an amount of money, such that, providing interest rates... <laughs> get got a little bit more. Provi Providing interest rates rise a little bit, uh, we have enough money to continue our, our commitment to this trust for these 11, uh, 14 girls at the moment, which are in this uh, hostel in, uh, in, in Santa Khan. We, we can educate them up to secondary level uh, for quite a, lot, quite a number of years. Mm. Even, if there, even, even if there were no more donations like this generous $9,000 here, we could still do it from the income that we, we now generate from the investment we've got. So we've gone from nothing, zero, and just meeting our, our obligations yeah. by Lynette doing talks through to having uh, accumulated investment which we can, the, the interest from which meets our objective. And we actually provide more than one third of their operating costs on a yearly basis. And we have done since, what, about... 2005. Yeah, about, well, yeah, it's coming up to 15 years. Can you tell us about a few of the other projects you have developed, such as Biosmile, and in particular, the story of Des Moines and the Friends of Maruru Village project? Well, the Biosmile is, is, is my baby, so I'll talk about that one. You, you can, I'll, I'll, because my voice is going, I can talk about Maruru Village. But uh, Biosmile, when we were walking through the jungle one day, uh, as we always do on these death marches, we found, uh, come across a little village, and maybe 10 or 10 little kids came running out. And our, our group of trekkers always has some sweets and some koalas and kangaroos and things to hand out the kids. And I noticed at the back of this group there was a little girl and she wasn't joining the group, wasn't coming, wasn't coming forward and getting her, her, her present. And obviously we would have given her one before, someone would have given her one before we left, but we went through the village and two or three months later we came back with another group and sure enough we came to this village and out came all the little kids again because they were new knew what to expect and so the, the koalas and the kangaroos all came out along with the sweets and again I noticed this poor little girl at the back of the group not, not participating so curiosity got the better of me then I thought well I'll go and talk to this little girl and when I got close to her I found that she had a very very bad cleft lip and cleft palate and she was really a, a lovely beautiful little girl but she was terribly deformed and ugly by, the, by this by this by this and I couldn't really work out, she was probably eight or nine years of age, and I couldn't reconcile in my head why someone hadn't done something about, <clears throat> done something about it by that stage. <clears throat> it took me quite a while 
after that trek to find out why. And one of the reasons is that she wasn't a Malaysian lady, it wasn't a Malaysian girl. And because she didn't have an IC, what's called an IC, which is identity certificate, she couldn't access the Malaysian medical system and could, therefore couldn't have it done. Her parents were subsistence people. They, they were working for an oil palm plantation. Um, they were, their income was such that if they provided rice and, and, and dried fish for dinner, that would be the, the end of their income. So they had no way of ever saving in their lifetime enough money to have this little girl operated on. So then I decided, well, that wasn't good enough. We had to find out a way to do that. In the meantime, <clears throat> before I did that, I found out I found a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, <clears throat> who was connected to a Rotary club in in Kinabalu, and I found out for about six thousand ringgits or two thousand Australian dollars, we could have this little bill fixed. So I just we let it, and I paid for that, just had it done, and uh, the word spread around from that. There was other other little children sort of heard about this in the in the various kampongs and villages. And suddenly there was another two, another two, another three, another four, another five uh, little, little girls and little boys who had the same problem. And to cut a long story short, we've, we've got a lot of very good friends who have provided a lot of donations over the three or four years that we've been doing this. And now 40, just over 40 little children have, um, have had that operation which they would otherwise not have had. So. That's that's my that's my baby. Um, and Lynette, can you tell us about the story of Des Moines and the Friends of Maruru Village project? Yes, um, Maruru Village is quite a remote little village off the Death March track, actually in another va valley. And uh, we went down there one day just to talk to people, and discovered an elderly man called Domoit, who was interesting because he had six toes on each foot, and he told us that during the time of the death marches, he had been forced to be a runner for the Japanese. He said one of the reasons he was so good running in the mud was because he had the extra toe for stability. But anyway, he ran many, many miles carrying messages to the Japanese up and down the death march track. And he told us that one day when the second march was going along um, at a crossing of a place called Kaporan, that he came across two Japanese standing over the body of an Australian POW they just shot and they were about to kill the second one. Um, the second one took off, took advantage of this, and took off into the jungle. The Japanese didn't follow him because along that stretch of particular track, there were local youths that had come from this, um, this valley who had penetrated that area, which was uninhabited, unexplored, and they were blowpipe warriors with poison blow darts. And they had been terrorising the Japanese along this stretch with their little blow guns going bumping them off. You've got about 15 minutes to live when it penetrates your body. And consequently, the Japanese were very worried about following anybody into the jungle because they didn't have the faintest idea who might be lurking. So they didn't bother to search for this fellow that ran off. They kept on their way. Well, Domoit is like our Australian Aboriginals. Um, the Doosan people are the local tribes people. And he didn't have much trouble locating this prisoner of war. He then took him by the jungle trails over the mountain into his little village of Miruru. And once they got there, the people there fed him and clothed him, built him a little shelter in the jungle and hid him from the Japanese until such time as Domoit and his brother could put him on a raft and float him down the river to another headman who'd also harboured some prisoners of war. Unfortunately, our prisoner of war didn't survive, but the thing was that this entire village took this massive risk because the Japanese had made it perfectly clear that any village 
that was harbouring escaped prisoners, you would, they would put, put them all to the sword. They would kill everybody. Old people, babies, the works. So these people took this massive risk to do this and um, because they were a long way away from the death march track, after the war nobody knew what Domoids had done or what the village people had done until I found out by accident. So we, this village was very, very poor and uh, I came back and told the Australian government about Domoids and they sent a representative across with a special plaque and a medallion and a letter of appreciation from the Australian government to recognise the contribution that he and the village people had made all those years ago. And it was the the very poor condition of the village that started us off. We, we, we bought the first few bags of rice and a few things they needed. And then I came back home and told people about Domoit and then people got interested and they said, oh, well, well, we're happy to help out. And so we bought them musical instruments and all sorts of things. They needed a wheelchair for people disabled, lots of stuff. And then uh, one day we were there and they took us to see the, the village preschool. Now this was basically under a house, um, I think it was probably a concrete, one room under a house, where they had like sticky vinyl was on the floor, that was it. And there were about eight or nine little children sitting around a table which had made, been made from offcuts of river, uh, bits of timber floating down the nearby river which had been collected. So they'd all been banged together, so some bits were, you know, a metre long, some bits were 30 centimetres, so and so it was hopeless to write on because it was all uneven. So this was the only table they had and they had some lead, lead pencils, they sat on the floor, lead pencils and some old computer paper and that was the preschool. They had two, two ladies there willing to teach the children songs but that's all they had. So uh, we, uh, we talked to the head man and um, he said that um, they didn't have enough money, the village was too poor and no government help. And so then we asked if the, if we provided the um, materials, could the because the village people build their own houses, could they build their own preschool? So we came back home and the preschool project was born, and uh, they all, we supplied the money. And uh, when we went back, they built a very large, lovely large hall with um, toilet facility and little kitchen and fully equipped with um, flat-screen TV and tables and chairs and fridges and stuff on the walls and. We had the most wonderful grand opening. We took some Australians who were trekking with us down there. One of them was a, had taken his bagpipes along and it was the first time the village had seen bagpipes and we got down there and they, had, they were playing gongs, which is a very big honour. If you arrive and gongs are being played, that's like your very important visitors. And the kids all learnt to dance and the village had this great party. We cut the ribbon and Maruru Preschool was open. So. Um, that's, that's still ongoing, we're still supporting the preschool, but that just came from the fact that Domoit, as a young man, had saved the life of this prisoner of war, and then that the whole village, instead of, instead of saying to him, get rid of him, he's a danger to us, the whole village agreed that they would support this fellow and try to keep him alive. And, you know, it's a huge ask, they had no affiliation with us. Sabah was under British government, not Australian government. Oh yes, last August we left about $300 for them to buy some new toys and things for the children and, uh, and to have the floor redone and recovering. So that's been up since about, oh, about five, six, well, I don't know, eight, nine years now. It's been a while. So Lynette, I did read that you actually found the lost uh, Sandarkin track. Is that correct? Uh, well, I'd, let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, I was over there in 2005 and... Uh, met a group of people who had walked from Sandakan to Ranau, mainly along the road as sort of a commemorative event. 
and I, look, I met the fellow um, who was organising it for them, Tam Yao Kong, Chinese uh, a trekker, very, very well known over there, and um, said to him, you know, walking along the road, that's terrible. I said, you know, if, if we could open up part of the track which is not affected by all palm plantations or modern day development, which was the middle section across the mountains, it's very remote, um, maybe we could encourage young Australians to come across for an adventure and they would then learn their history by default. We'll lure them in for the adventure yeah. and then we'll teach them the history. And he said, oh, that's a wonderful idea, but nobody knows where the track went. And I said, well, I do. I've got the map. Now, back in 1992, so I met somebody who had been with the Wargraves group and he was charged with drawing what we would call today a mud map. I don't know if you know what a mud map is. It's a map you draw on, the, draw on a piece of paper or on the dirt with a stick to show somebody how to get from point A to point B. The cadets all still do yeah, mud right. maps as you part know, of their instruction. Right. You know then that if you take your mud map and you put it onto a military map, it's going to mean nothing. You can't transpose it. You can't. It's out, it's out to blazes in latitude and longitude and it's out of scale but if you f start from point A and you go along and cross a certain river and turn left at a, some other landmark you can find your way to where you need to go. Well that's what this map was used for because they followed the river systems and uh, they put them all in and they put in the names of all the tributaries so basically I couldn't do it from here but I said to Tom you'll need to need, need to go in on the ground and find the start point on this and follow it. So he rounded up a group of um, Doosan uh, jungle experts, uh, mountain guides who are also can live, they can actually live in the jungle, they're so skilled. And he went in with them, there were four of them, and he went in for four months from where he lived in Kota Kinabali, which is a city, and they drove up into the mountains and they, they started to follow and they would find farmers who would help them out by for instance, on the map, it would say that there was a, a Japanese ammunition dump, and they would go to that particular spot, the confluence of two rivers, and ask to own the land. And they find the farmer and say, "Oh, I don't use that land because I set fire to it to clear it, and all this bangs went off." <laughs> right. So, so bit by bit, we it was a bit like being a history detective on the ground. Bit by bit, Tan found local people who'd had to carry ammunition for the Japanese. He found one of the blowpipe warriors who'd been bumping them off on this particular stretch, and. Those people, there were five of them all together, with the map and all this information, we were able to put together what we call the lost section because there was a section of the Death March track that was especially cut that linked two existing trails. So the trail at the far end was always there. Part of the trail from the Sandakana end was always there. It was the bit from mile 42 onwards that had to be cut. So. Um, we put it together and in 2006 um, Australian military came down from Malaya or Malaysia now, West Malaysia, and they opened up the track with soldiers. The Australian government said it was fitting that the military be the first to walk across this reopened track. So, with us? With us, yeah, we went. Fantastic. Is it now protected from further development, those sorts of things? Well, or? the bits that go, well, fortunately, we've got very good, the forestry people are very good. The forestry over there fights a slight kind of losing battle against development whereby um, vested interests and you know you got when you get corruption things happen that shouldn't you get vested interests who want to log forests that shouldn't be logged well the forestry's got on side and uh, when they found out that um, the track went through three of their forestry reserves that gave us extra clout to main preserve that forest as well as from what grows there 
the actual historical significance. So they've come on board and that, that will always be fine the, through the three forestry areas. Um, the bits that go through um, what we call kampong land or village land, um, that depends on the whim of the village and you know whether they want a development. And sometimes we'll walk through rice paddies and the next time we'll go there it'll be all overgrown with weeds. And So we never quite know from one walk to the next what's going on in the kampong land. But yes, it's uh, the bit we've preserved should remain the 95 kilometres we walk out of the 250 uh, should remain pretty much intact uh, for quite a long time to come. Fantastic.